So we're going to tease, tease the people a little tease bit, Lauren. Tease it, tease it. Tease it, tease it. Tease it. Okay. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Green Light Podcast. Hey, it's Jackson here. It's Lauren. And welcome what back way to, to the start. green light. Sometimes, you know, I'm just like, how am I going to do this? And then my body just starts to do something that I can't control it. So hmm. that's what happened there. All right. What do we do here, Lauren? We read unproduced plays and screenplays and interview the fantabulous people who write them. Fantabulous. That's a new one. Yeah. I try I to keep it fresh. Used fantabulous. Thank you. Thank you for trying Not to keep it fresh. Not in your weird, out of control way, but... Um... <laughs> hey, Lauren, that's how I live my life. Okay. As an actor, I think you would appreciate that. Oh, spontaneous. I think you should okay. appreciate that. Yeah, the okay, spontaneous whatever. nature of living life. Uh, well, so yeah, if you're new here, that's what we do. Yep. And uh, as I've said before, if you're old here, hopefully you already know that. Um, and also, if you're old here, we would love it if you would leave us a five-star review on iTunes slash yes. Apple Podcasts. Yes, please. I'm checking right now. To yeah, see not just a rating. We do need you to write something. But, you know, it takes like two seconds, and you can write whatever you want. You can roast me. You can roast Jackson. You can leave your detour of the week, and we will read it on the show. Did we get a new review? Yes, we did. Oh, no. <laughs> what does it say? Um, so this review is on uh, Apple Podcasts. It is from Jacob Lowling. Or maybe it's Jacob LOLing. It it could very well be that from very well Jacob Wesnick in our house. <laughs> I, I would I would imagine. The title is They Sound Short. The actual content? Grow taller, nerds. <laughs> That's I'm it. I'm <laughs> tall for a woman. For a woman you are tall. For a man, I am of average height. Yeah. So average together we're of Low to average height, but short to okay. average. That's you know, okay. I mean, at one short point, kings. At one point, like last week, you short gave me kings. a hug while I was sitting in a chair and was like, "Imagine if I was this was this tall," and I was like, "That would be very scary." That would be weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. you know, I think I think you're the perfect height. Aww. I think I'm also the perfect height. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Well, it is wild because Lauren's legs, even though she's like an inch shorter than me, her legs are longer than mine. This is true. I do have I do have some short stubby legs. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny too because. Um, in general, women typically have better balance because we have a lower center of gravity. However, because my legs are longer than yours, you actually probably have better balance. I do have a pretty pretty low center of gravity. So it's the thickness. <laughs> it's the okay. thickness. Uh, anyway, so yeah, we did you we talk about Patreon as well? Not yet. Oh, well, let's um, I was talk just about that. that. Alrighty. Well, yeah. So we are actually going to have our very first road trip episode dropping That's true. towards the end of this month. We finally picked our script, got it, it a, all figured out. It is it's about like a, a forty-five minute length script. Yeah, it's about sixty pages. Yeah, uh, it's very good. Very we, good. We're uh, so excited. About we got it. a lot of submissions. Thank you to everyone who submitted. Uh, we like got we got a, scripts for us yeah, to read. yeah we got a decent amount of submissions, and this one we really liked. Really, the main reason uh, not not only because it was a, a a wonderfully written script, but it really fits for what we were looking for for the uh, first one we were, were trying for, to keep like, it just us hopefully yeah you know? exactly just while we're while we're getting such a longer script under our belt and working out how to edit scripts with other people in it yeah. uh so so that worked out perfectly with that but it's also very well written so yeah. if so, you yeah, are you will see uh an excerpt from it on yes, our main show that's but true that is at the ten dollar level and above on 
Patreon. Yes. Um, and even if you're at the $5 or the $1 level, you still get a ton of bonus content. Yes, but exactly. that's a new thing coming and, up. And uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks as well is going to be our next Greenlit episode. Yeah. As well, we have not picked it out yet. We're thinking of actually going something a little more a little more serious this time. Yeah. A little more action-based, maybe. An action-adventure, if you will, perhaps. So stay tuned for that. I'm trying to remember if you're talking that. about something specific, because no. I don't remember. No, not really. Okay. <laughs> but there, there have been a few thrown out. We'll discuss sure. it. We'll discuss okay, it in a little mind. round table. But yeah, so check out our Patreon. Um, the link Lauren is in the description. I. Or if you go to the bio of any of our social medias, um, there's a link tree with pretty much everything you need there. All of the links you could possibly ever so want. check it out. Yes. Alrighty. Today we are going to be reading a script called The Man Who Shot Hitler by Stephen Christopher McKnight. It is a play and it is very good, but you're going to have to wait on that because right now we are going to do a segment called Detours of the Week. Beep, Our detour beep. segment meow, meow. is... <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be honest. I don't know if that was Birdo or steering. <laughs> I don't know what that it was. It threw me off a bit. All right. <laughs> Our detour segment where every week we talk about something that we've consumed in the media, probably a movie or a TV show or a book or a play, and that one time a 10-year-old video game. Yep. That one time. Probably never again, just so we can say that one time. But this week we actually have two movies, one that's about eight years old and one that's about... Less than a month old. old. Yeah. Well, it, I guess a it few dropped days. on September 4th. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we're not going to talk about that one about. yet. <laughs> if you do, good for you. Uh, but if not, you're going to have to wait because we're going to yeah. talk about the one from 2012 first. So Lauren and I both watch both of these movies. So we're yeah, going yeah, yeah. to tag team both thing. of these. So Safety Not Guaranteed is a 2012 movie starring Aubrey Plaza, Mark Duplass, Jake Johnson, and Karen Sony. I'm not exactly sure if that's how you pronounce his name. The first three names you might have recognized. The last one, if you don't recognize that name, he was the taxi driver in Deadpool. Also, Kristen Bell is in it for like a scene. Kristen Bell is in it. The she dad opened the door and I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. The dad from the Goldbergs is in it as well. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, this movie is directed by Colin Trevorrow. And one thing that I'm going to go ahead and say about this movie, it's on Netflix, by the way. Yeah, for it everyone. is like an, in, like, I guess more of a maybe slightly higher budget indie film. Yes, it, it's definitely a, a very, very much of an indie feel at the very definitely, least. Yeah. Uh, so this director directed this very indie feeling movie. The next movie, I'm sure you're looking at the notes, Lauren. Well, I mean, I already knew this. We talked about it. J- Jacob yeah. is the one who, who, who filled us in on this, and I double checked to make sure, and it is true. Next movie he directed was Jurassic World. Which is insane. What a huge leap. Because, I mean, you're this... going from a movie that, you know, is actually good but fairly low budget to a movie that is super high budget but bad. Hey. Crazy. Jurassic World is fine. Mm-hmm. All right. It is. It has some decent action. But that's not the movie we're talking about today. So I will <laughs> hold my tongue. I actually, if you want to talk a little bit, Lauren, I'm going to see what the budget of this movie is. Yeah, no problem. So uh, Safety Not Guaranteed is actually based on, I, I believe it was based on a real classified ad, wasn't it? Yes. So yeah, yeah I looked I looked it up on IMDb. I don't, uh, it didn't have too much and I didn't look too far into it. So yeah, it was, it was a, it was written as a last minute filler by like an employee of a magazine who is credited in the film as time travel consultant and has a cameo. Yeah. But, um, so I don't know if it was real. I think it was just an extra thing that oh, he had okay. to put in, but still it's based on that, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So it's basically, um, there is a magazine in Seattle and um, they're just like looking for ideas for articles, whatever. And this guy's like, hey, I found this um, classified ad 
for from this guy in Ocean View, I believe, who sure. is looking for someone to go back in time with him. And, you know, he, he's kind of vague about it. He says, you must bring your own weapons and uh, safety not guaranteed. Yeah. So... Um, did you did you say that Aubrey Plaza is uh, she works for a magazine? Yeah, well, I said it was a magazine that was okay. going through ideas for articles. So okay, yeah, cool. the guy who's trying to write the article is um, I'm trying to come up with uh, something that doesn't have swearing in it. A good name for him <laughs> for Jake Johnson's character. Yeah, uh, he's kind of he's very frat boy in a 35 yeah. year old's body. Yeah, he he's broy in a gross way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but you know a comedic way. Um, so, yeah, he grabs two interns, Aubrey Plaza and... Taxi driver from Deadpool. Oh, okay, so that that was... Yes. Caronsoni. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, so he grabs them, they're interns of the magazine, very overworked, um, and his, you know, uh, Caronsoni... Jesus Christ! <laughs> Lauren's mic just fell out of the mic stand. <laughs> we're gonna edit that out. That's too traumatizing. No, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> no, if someone's driving and they hear that, they'll wreck their car. <laughs> okay, we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> we might put that at the beginning. That'll be our beginning thing. Okay. Well, anyway, um, is it, how is his name pronounced? Karan Sony. I, I truthfully do not know. Okay. I probably butchered. Well, it. I'm I'm sorry for butchering your name, but. Um, I'm sure yeah, he is his character is really yeah right. If you're listening, <laughs> but you know his character is really funny. Um, and he's just kind of this awkward like twenty something. I think he's still in his undergrad. For, um, from my understanding, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aubrey Plaza's character, yeah, seems to be just out of college, and he seems to be sort of in the midst of his undergrad, right? Career. Um, but you know, he's kind of an awkward guy, and then Aubrey Plaza is um, she just is very depressed, you know, and her her life has sort of taken a depressive turn as it's revealed right at the beginning since her mother died. Yeah. I would say that Aubrey Plaza's character in this is basically April from Parks and Rec. Pretty much. But like the yeah. time when she like cared about the dog park, this like magazine is kind of her dog park in a way. Yeah. yeah like yeah, her yeah. career is like the dog park. Yeah. So, no, that's definitely fair. Yeah. Um, and this was, Aubrey Plaza was already established in Parks and Rec. This was about three years into Parks and Rec. Yeah, when that this, sounds right. When this came this out. This 2012. Yeah. But yeah, we, okay, we really need to finish talking about the plot of the movie. Sure. So, um, so these, the journalists and the two interns go to Ocean View. It turns out Jake Johnson actually just went to um, bang this girl that he was with when he was like 18 and wants <laughs> to see her again. <laughs> um, and then he's deeply offended that, you know, she doesn't look like she's 18 anymore. Um, Correct. But, you know, she still looks very good. Um, But anyway, so they need a way to infiltrate this guy's world, I guess, who wrote the classified ad. So Jake Johnson tries first and tries to pretend he's actually interested in traveling in time and responding to the ad. And, um, you know, the guy sees right through him and is like, you you don't actually care about this. Like, he thinks maybe he's with the people who were after him or something like that. There yeah. are some government agents after him because yeah. he's been tampering in some stuff. Sure. But basically, it turns out Aubrey Plaza is the one who is able to get through to him. So yeah. the movie is a lot about their relationship. For and sure, then, yeah. Uh, and the they secondary kind of come arcs together with and Jake Johnson. And- like, yeah, and, you know, they yeah, they're kind of coping with different things in their lives, I guess. For and sure. have different reasons for going back in time. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and I mean, I that's, won't spoil that's the ending, much but it. yeah, that's pretty yeah. much it. Yeah, um, so I guess I want to talk a little bit about uh, the characters, because I think I thought the characters were all very strong, um, mostly good, I would say. I, I really actually liked Aubrey Plaza's character's Me relationship too. with Mark Duplaz's. 
Yeah. I thought I thought that was a, a really strong point of the movie. And truthfully, I, I, I guess this is kind of a spoiler. Um, I did not think her character with like Mark Duplass's character was going to be turned romantic. I really, I, I honestly really? did not think that. Yeah. Oh, I felt like it was going to, I felt like it was going to from the first time I saw them together. Yeah. But I didn't think I would like it. But I did. Yeah, I think I think it it turned romantic in a very natural and yeah. seamless way, and it it was towards the end of the movie, which is why I said it might be a little bit of a spoiler. But anyways, oh, well. so I thought I thought that worked well. I really also like Mark Duplass's character. Yeah, I thought I mean he, he played that part very well. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you know he also this is also kind of a spoiler, but he made a pretty big mistake in he his did. past. Yeah. And he's not like totally upfront with Aubrey Plaza's character. Her name's Darius, that's right. Um about why he's going back in time. He kind of makes it seem like someone else was was responsible for this thing he did. Um and you know, but it also is like his character is very sympathetic, I guess. Yeah, you know. Definitely can, very sympathetic. We can definitely understand where he's coming from um and you know why he wants to kind of make it better so yeah yeah. definitely uh okay sort of last thing on this one uh what did you think of jake johnson his character and his arc i'd really like your opinion yeah probably my least favorite character in the movie not Hmm. necessarily that he was like an awful character like i think that he was definitely more of the comic relief for sure for sure you know like him and I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, Karan. Um, Arno was his name in the movie. Oh, Arno was his name in the movie? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, him and Arno were definitely the the comic relief. Um, but, you know, I mean, Jake Johnson, it's just like he started as just a jerk at the beginning, and then towards the end he was trying to kind of get Arno out there to do things and, you know, try and talk to girls and whatever and just trying to tell him to live while he's young and everything. Yeah. But I almost feel like he never really grew to the point where he appreciated being where he was, the age he was, you know. Yeah. Having the opportunity to maybe rekindle something special with someone. I think that's a, I, I think don't think he really point. got past himself. Yeah. You know, because I really think that I don't remember the character's name, but um the the woman he was trying to kind of rekindle his relationship sure, with. The high school fling. Yeah, I, I really think that there would have been a possibility for them to work something out if he hadn't been so I guess I don't know, firm on her moving to Seattle rather than him relocating I or think, even just trying to do it too fast. I think yeah, I think his mindset was still very very juvenile yeah, in that definitely. sense which I, which I think shows especially in his character throughout I think I would say the biggest point of growth for him was kind of starting to care about other people yeah, because when I, you he was know, kind of starting to care about Arno. At, and yeah, stuff. at the beginning yeah. of the film, it was all just you know, I'm doing this. Y'all do whatever you want. I don't yeah. care. Well, you guys go write the article for me. Exactly. I'm gonna go talk to this girl. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And by the end, I think he grew a little bit because you know he was helping Arno a lot, and you know he was the one. He he slept like outside in a lawn chair, pretty much, so that so that Arno could have uh, have some alone time with uh, the girl that he met. So I think that was his moment of growth. Like you said, I think it could have been stronger. Like yeah. I don't I don't think that. That was his main point of growth that could have been shown. I think it was moving from a more juvenile mindset to a more mature 
mature mindset. And mm-hmm. I don't know if we got that. But yeah. I love Jake Johnson as an actor. I think he's great. Yeah, I think he's really actor, funny. He's great. So he's still very charming. Yeah. Um, and the story's good. It's really good. It's a it's a small little film that probably a lot of people haven't seen. It's on Netflix. Uh, so safety not guaranteed. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Yes, uh, the the budget. $750,000 for this movie. Wow. Considering Jurassic, all the people who were in it? Yeah. That's really low. And Jurassic World had oh a budget gosh. of $150 million. So, a <laughs> little, little okay. bit of a difference. A little bit of a difference there. Alrighty. That is safety not guaranteed now. We're moving on to our second, the big budget that we're talking about today. You probably guessed it. Mulan. Mulan. Mulan is a 2020 film. That's this year on Disney Plus. So yeah, it was supposed to come out in theaters on March 27th, but it did yes, not it was. because COVID. Yes, and because it's not in theaters, it is thirty dollars. So you have to pay an extra thirty dollars in addition to your Disney Plus subscription. It will be available for everyone on December fourth for yes. everyone who has just a normal Disney Plus subscription. But from now until then, you'll have to pay that thirty dollar yeah. fee. Now you Which, wanted like, to talk honestly about. Honestly, was not too bad for you know we live in a house of seven people. Yeah, and I just want to rant about something real quick. Go ahead. So I saw this dumb Facebook post today, um, talking about how you know. Don't pay to see Mulan. They're just testing the waters. You know, they're going to make you pay for the subscription service and this premium fee for every movie from now on. It's like paying to get into the lobby of the movie theater and then having to pay to see the movie. I get the perspective of not wanting to pay for things twice. However, your Disney Plus subscription is to see all of the old Disney movies, all the classics, all of the DCOMs, all of the Disney Channel series. All of even all of these new series that are being made. Decoms is Disney Channel original movie for those who aren't yeah. initiated. So, but the thing is, Mulan. You know, I mean, I've been looking forward to this movie since it was announced. You know, especially since it was announced that it wouldn't have music because I think that was a good choice. Yeah. Um. And you know, the trailers looked amazing, and it would have made so much money in the box office if it could have had a theatrical release. So, because it couldn't have a theatrical release, they wanted a way to recoup that money. And while Disney is definitely not starving for funds, at the same time, you know, they are a business. Like they do need to make their money back yeah. on the movies they make. This was for a sure. very big budget movie. Yeah. So yeah, it, it that's makes my thought sense. on that. And that's also like if they assume that. You're going to be watching it like with your family. Yeah, you which know. I think is the idea. Yeah, that like they assume. Okay, well, if there are four people going to the movies and each person spends an average of like seven seven fifty on a movie ticket. <laughs> well, we're, we're, that's North Carolina prices. That's Lord. North Carolina <laughs> prices, right? But I mean, that's a lot of like not big city areas in the country. Sure, you know. Sure. So, I mean, that's a pretty reasonable price to see a brand new movie. Absolutely. You know, and Absolutely. if you want to wait a couple months, you know, if you, you wouldn't can. have seen it in theaters initially, you can and still you just want to wait till it's on Netflix like you would with any other movie that's in theaters, you yes. can do that and not pay the $30 and just see it for your regular, whatever, $6.99 a month. Disney Plus price. Yes. So. Absolutely. Anyway, I just thought that post was dumb. It ran it, over. It is dumb. <laughs> uh, and that that's okay, because that's a, a good topic of discussion. So, one thing that I'll immediately say about this is this is not the animated film. Yeah. Don't go into this film expecting that it is the animated film, because you will probably be disappointed, because it is very different. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna say the, the main cast, because I realized I did not do that, and I'm oh, definitely yeah, yeah. going to butcher these names. Um. Yifei Lu as Mulan, Donnie Yen, Lee Gong, Jet Li's in it, Jason Scott Lee. Uh, there are definitely some uh, recognizable Asian actors that have appeared in a lot of uh, you yeah. know films that we would know of. But Mulan is actually, I, I think she's a famous actress 
um, in China. But oh, um, okay, yeah, because yeah, I mean, I hadn't seen her. Most anything. people have not will have not seen her. She does a great job. I think She's I think she fabulous. does a really great job. But yeah, don't go in expecting. There's no Mushu. There's no music. There, yeah. It's not like a. It definitely has does not have as much comedy as the first one had. There's a little bit, but yeah, it's it's definitely more of an action. This like, is a drama. This is a kung fu movie. Yeah. I would argue. Yeah. It's definitely like a, and you see a lot of elements of that, like, you know, late nineties, early two thousands wire foo of like the, the Kung Fu movies hmm. that were, you know, sort of became popular in America, like crouching tiger, hidden dragon, stuff like that. Sure, so sure, sure. those elements I thought were really cool. And yeah. my, one of my favorite parts of the films was the action sequences. Absolutely. Like the fight sequences. The fights, I thought they were done. And very I mean, well. I truly, I, I could not speak to the 100% authenticity of it. However, I do know that they tried to pay a lot more respect and authenticity to the legend of uh, Hua Mulan. Yes, correct. Which Which I I I thought was great, Um, especially since, you know, it's kind of the same deal as like the Disney Pocahontas movie that dealt with a real person and was nothing like that person's life. Sure. You know, Um, so I think that while that was something where, you know, okay, great, it's a popular movie that people enjoyed, we have to look back at it as a fictitious thing, mm-hmm. it's good that they're taking the opportunity to make these live-action movies something a little more accurate. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. it's not it's not like it's a, a totally different movie. Like, the plot is roughly the same. It's essentially the yeah. same. And there are some, some subtle and some not-so-subtle references mm, to the animated yeah. film. There are a lot of musical motifs that reference Absolutely, the original which film. which I love. Which I think, yeah, are done very subtly and very well. There are also some outright lines that are exact <laughs> copies from lines and music from the original, yeah. which I didn't mind. I truthfully didn't mind. I know well, you had a bit, you're like, ah, that's too on the nose, but I didn't right. mind that. So there were two specific moments that I noticed. Um, one was there was a line from I'll Make a Man Out of You, Tranquil as a Forest but on Fire Within. Yes. But because that was the only line from that song and it didn't rhyme. And I mean, at some other point they said, like, we'll make men out of you or something. I didn't mind yeah, that. Yeah. But there was one part where a bunch of the soldiers that Mulan's kind of hanging out with were, you know, they literally just said a bunch of lyrics in succession from a girl worth fighting for, and they still rhymed, and they were just trying to make it normal dialogue. I think it was only that one. It was only the... uh, No, there were... Well, there was the, the I don't care what she looks like, I just care what she looks like, but there were also, like, two more lines before that that come before that line in the song. Yeah. Well, see, I I, I didn't realize that part. But No, yeah, it was just, like, four lines in a row, and I was like, that's a little on the nose. I I mean, it is, but at the same time, I, I didn't mind it. Speaking of those characters, I thought they were a, a highlight of the film. Oh, the absolutely! Cricket yeah. and Poe and all of those characters. I think yeah. they really shined uh, Wah in was their another roles. One too, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also interesting because um, uh, who was the original captain? You played Captain Lee Shang. Captain Lee Shang. Lauren played Captain Lee Shang in a musical <laughs> Don't version. Talk about it. <laughs> it was Milan. a camp. Um, there was exactly one boy, and he was very young. <laughs> yes. So I was Captain Lee Shang. Lauren. It Stimson. was very ironic. So yeah. So that character from the film or from the original animated film is actually sort of split into two characters in this yeah. one. So there's the younger love interest who's actually just another soldier like Mulan. And then there is like the actual commander who really, who has no romantic yeah. interest. Which is good because it gets rid of the kind of weird power dynamic. Correct. And I thought I also, that was done well. Yeah. And this is kind of a spoiler, but I also like that she didn't really end up with him at the end. There yeah. was kind of a hint that something could happen. Sure. But, it, but that wasn't like the main part of it. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the romantic part of it was very subtle and it was mostly focused on her quest to becoming a warrior and saving the emperor. Yeah. So I really yeah. appreciated that. 
Um, the cinematography I thought was great too. Yeah. Awesome. It was gorgeous. They showed some really beautiful parts of, I, I, I have to assume this was shot in China. Right? I have no idea. I assume. I would have to assume. Well, if, if it did, they showed some beautiful parts of China. They did, um, yeah. And, you know, and they talked about, um, they talked about, like, the Silk Road and stuff like that. It had, it had locations that were set in, you know, that were actual real locations in China in this time period, yeah. as opposed to just made-up locations. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. They did. But, yeah, oh. I, it was very, very good. Um, and just the the visuals of it were great, you know, like all of the I don't remember the villain's name, but um, all of his men were on these like really striking black horses, you know. Yeah. And the like, way they use color was really cool. Yeah, the way they use color was awesome. Um, I really like the witch character. I have no idea if she's actually part of the legend, but we stand her. Well, yeah, I Bori Khan was the Bori Khan. That's right, played by Jason Scott Lee. Yeah, but you know, I I really with. liked that Mulan had sort of. Another another woman who was seen the way that she was, but who mm-hmm. had taken a different path for sure. Um, yeah. And she had kind of a redemption arc too. You know, I I just really like that. Um, yeah, the action sequences were amazing. The fights were really cool. I thought the fights were really creative. Yeah, you know the way that Mulan was able to kind of use her surroundings. Um, I agree. Like there was that bit with the um, I don't know the big the big wooden plank. I guess right at the end. Oh yeah, on on the crane type yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she's with uh, Borikan. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, that yeah, was it was very, very cool. creative. Yeah, uh, that's pretty much all I have about Mulan. I think. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I thought um, overall a good movie. Not perfect, but definitely a good watch. Would you say for people who have Disney Plus, do you think it's worth watching it now, or do you think it's something that? would be fine if you waited. So I think it depends on your situation. If you are living with some other people who are going to help you pay for it, absolutely watch it now. If you are living alone and you'd be paying that $30 by yourself or even with one other person, I don't know, even with one other person, it's just, if you, if you're used to paying $15 to watch a movie, like, you know, if you don't have AMCA list and you live in LA, you probably do. Sure. Um, then for sure, go for it. Um, and definitely if you are splitting that cost with a bunch of people. But, you know, if you don't feel like forking over $30, then... I don't think it's necessary that you yeah. watch this now. Yeah. But, you know, very good. And if you if you do wait, it'll be a nice one around the holidays because that's when it comes Absolutely, out. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I just really think a lot of the people who don't like Mulan just didn't know what to expect and were expecting a live action of the animated movie. Yeah, which is not for what sure. It was. For sure. Um, but I thought I appreciated that they did something different and I liked it a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty. That's all for us as far as detours go. I can't believe we haven't mentioned this yet. Today, we are reading a script from Stephen Christopher McKnight called The Man Who Shot Hitler. Yeah. And so we're really excited about that. It's a great script. So that it's is coming up next. Everybody, welcome back to the green light. Green light. We are reading the man Quick who shot. <laughs> Quick on that one. Okay. We are Sorry. reading the man who shot Hitler by Stephen Christopher McKnight. Yes, we are. And it is just us today. You, yeah, you will notice the absence of any other voices besides the two of ours, and you're probably like, "Man, these two again." Yeah. Again. However, there are actually two people in the cast. Um, Spoilers. So you'll figure out <laughs> what that means later. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Whew. But yeah. Um. I am reading Stage Directions. And I am reading Hitler. 
Yeah. <laughs> Period. You just made a weird face. Yeah. Well, I, I made a weird I phrase. I feel weird about it, too. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> but you'll understand when we read. Yeah. All right. So, The Man Who Shot Hitler by Stephen Christopher McKnight. Time. When the world is caving in. Place. A bunker. After all, magical things happen when fascists are in bunkers. Cast. A fascist who will remain nameless. Hitler. Set. A bunker. It is drably decorated. There is a mirror that doesn't work quite as well as one would like it to. Enter fascist. Distraught. Carrying a small bundle of papers. He paces. Rereading the papers over and over and over again, hoping that if he reads them one more time, they will somehow not say what they say. This strategy, unsurprisingly, does not work. Fascist tries to tear the papers in half, but the bundle proves to be too thick. He pats at his pockets, trying to find his lighter. He does. Pulls it out. Clicks it uselessly. Clicks it again, frantically this time. Nothing. In a rage, he whips the lighter off stage, throws the papers to the floor, stomps on them. Stomps for longer than is necessary. Stops. Exhausted. Panting. He turns his gaze to the mirror, but instead of his own reflection, he sees Hitler in full Nazi regalia, congealed blood caked around a bullet hole in his head, mirroring his every movement Harpo Mark style. Fascist seems unperturbed by this. Hitler suddenly. Boo! Fascist is unsurprised by this. Hitler trying to squeeze through the mirror. A little help here, please. Fascist helps. Woo! We are through the looking glass. Notices fascist is not charmed. Uh, just a little humor. Thank you. Oh, so much, Mr. He looks for any indication of name. A name tag, maybe? Ah, uh, it doesn't matter. I suppose you're wondering why I've got a hole in my head. Leans in as if divulging a secret. I think someone shot me. Breaks away. Or not. Lots of things make bullet holes. That's why they're called bullet holes. Does it look that bad? Checks himself in the mirror. I really can't tell from this angle. And your mirror's not... working. Parts his hair to try to hide the gaping wound. Well, you can hide an awful lot of things with a good comb over, eh? What do you think? Suddenly gets frustrated at fascist silence. Are you dumb? Speak, damn you! Fascist collapses in a chair or on the floor, sobbing. Hitler feels bad and kneels down beside him. Oh, there, there. Don't cry, don't cry. Here. Hitler hands fascist a Nazi armband to blot the tears away with. Fascist takes it, blows his nose on it, keeps sobbing. Okay, maybe don't do that. A little disrespectful. Um, Repositions uh, himself, sits by him. Let it out, sport. Punches him playfully on the shoulder. Do you want to talk about it? Fascist shakes his head no. Got it. Awkward silence. Hitler notices the bundle of papers on the floor, scoots toward it, picks it up. May I? Fascist shrugs. Let's see here. Defeat. Defeat. Oh, that's not good. Insurrection? Nope, never a good sign. Oh. Oh, you're second in command? That's rough. Fascist starts sobbing again. Oh no, I've upset you, I'm sorry. Um, this is all really good. Look, you employed my scapegoat maneuver. Every perfect society needs a scapegoat to blame their imperfections on so they don't start doubting how perfect they are. You are a good fascist leader, okay? A very good fascist leader. I rate you an eight and a half out of ten. Oh, don't cry. Please stop crying. I'm, I'm sure you'll get out of this, all right? Reads a very disturbing passage. Oh. Oh, no, that's not very good. Kneels down by fascist again. Listen, sport, you're always bound to find your fair share of enemies in your life. 
That's just the way it has to be. Can't live life without resistance, you know? And sometimes your friends won't be your friends anymore, and you just have to respect that. Like, I had a friend, Joe. We would do everything together. Invade Poland. That is the end of the list. Anyway, I launch one full-scale invasion of his nation, and all of a sudden, he hates me. Calls me evil. Let me tell you, my friend, they will be very quick to label you as evil, but you're not. You're just... ambitious. Yes, ambitious! And just because your ambitions are contrary to theirs... No. Your ambitions are greater than theirs. They're not visionaries. You're the visionary. They're all swept up in maintenance. The old world order. The old world. All in service of the old world. And... What do I do? I try to make it great again. Better than it was before, and suddenly, they all fall upon me. Russia to my east, all those goddamn Americans, no offense, to the west. Suddenly, my friends aren't my friends anymore. It's a suicide mission. All is lost. All! All is lost and they're gone. And you're alone in a stupid bunker with all your worst enemies and... Is the hole still noticeable? I'm sorry, I just... I can't stop thinking about it and... You know, forget it. Forget I said anything. Fascist sobs silently. Hitler kneels again beside him. What happened to you? You used to be happy, right? Just think about that. When you were happy. Fascist cannot think of when he was happy. I just... don't want it to end this way. But it will. And I get it. You want to peacefully fall apart, I get it. But when people like you or I do these things, cleanse some people, gut the world, there's opposition all around us. And for a while, you can hold firm. But once the cracks begin to show, it all shatters, and there's retribution from every direction. That's just how it is. I couldn't stop it. Neither could you. But maybe it doesn't have to end like this. Hitler hands fascist an old pistol, still speckled with blood. Go down fighting. When you face your greatest enemy, all you have to do is point and shoot. What's so hard about that? He begins to crawl back into the mirror. Good luck, sport. Exit Hitler through the mirror. Fascist stares at the gun in his hand. Beat. Fascist stares at the door. Beat. Fascist stares at the empty mirror. Beat. Either before or after blackout, an action may or may not be taken. Blackout. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Green Light! Green line. We are here with our writer of the week, Stephen Christopher McKnight, who wrote The Man Who Shot Hitler. Uh, welcome. Hello, hello. This is he. Yay. <laughs> How's it going today, Stephen? It is, you are three hours ahead of us on the East Coast, so it's roughly 3 p.m. where you are. So how is 3 p.m. on the East Coast treating you? Uh, it's overcast right now. Um, that's pretty much it. Every day is either 
immensely hot or immensely overcast. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a special time. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. The high here today is 116 degrees. Yep. So oh, that, that's I a do little, wish it was overcast. Yeah, a little a little taste of, of L.A. For, for everyone listening out there. So yeah. it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's well, just I mean, sunshine. It, yeah, just sun. <laughs> sunshine only. Um, but yeah, I guess... Uh, Let's just jump into it. And yeah. I say that every week. But let's begin with our writer origin story. So just sort of talk about how you got started writing, Stephen. Okay, well, um, you know, when I was two or three, I picked up a pen, put a couple words on a page, got a release of dopamine, and thought, yes, this. And I've been trying <laughs> to recreate that ever since, and I haven't. <laughs> so that's sort of... Where it all began, I've been telling stories since I was really little. Um, when I was, I believe, 12 or 13, I enrolled in a free playwriting class with my local uh, university library, not university library, no, the local public library, um, nice. under the tutelage of Rachel Lilland Strayer, who wrote Drowning Ophelia and some really great uh some, some really great one-act. Uh, she's a very prolific playwright. She was fantastic. She taught that... Uh, playwriting class for six years, so I wrote a few one-acts in that, and then, you know, I went to college, uh, applied to three colleges, uh, got rejected by two of the three colleges. The third one was sort of my default option at that point, so I went to Susquehanna University, majored in theater studies and creative writing, and now... Here I am, I guess. Nice. Well, fantastic. Well, those other two colleges, we hate them. Whatever yeah. they are, we hate them. Not fans <laughs> oh, of those on the green light. <laughs> As a uh, musical theater major, I applied to like 10 schools and got into the musical theater program at one of them. So I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I applied as a musical theater major, and then I realized, no, Stephen can't act. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can write, which which yeah. we appreciate, and I love that 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 chasing that high of the of yeah. the first first time paper to pen. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we don't usually ask this question because it seems kind of basic, and you know, doesn't always evoke an interesting response. But it's kind of necessar- necessary for this one. So, what was the inspiration for this script? Okay, so this was, this, this isn't the kind of script that I usually write, in the fact that I don't necessarily write for the sake of personal catharsis, um, <laughs> but this was, I wrote this the night that Donald Trump was getting all up in arms about the riots, that first night that mm. he was like, law and order, uh, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, mm, yeah. and he was just sort of, it felt like the beginning of something that was really going to spiral out of control. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm a history guy vaguely. Like my, my dad is a, is a historian. So I, I sort of have that awareness of history as a result of, you know, growing up with him. But, um, so, like, I, I've been doing a lot of research into, you know, Nazi Germany and, you know, uh, the communist bloc, the, the Soviet bloc uh, during the Cold War. And I was like, this is how it begins, but there is definitely going to be an end to this. And this was sort of me trying to come to terms with the end to... And that in the script, you'll see that the fascist remains nameless because we try not to name names 
we try to keep things as general as possible, mm-hmm. but it's just like, this is the course that this is going to go down. It's gone down this road before. It's all going to be okay somehow. Hmm. That's really interesting. I, yeah. I like how... Because uh, and we talk about it a little bit. We have we have a question about it later. But you know, this is overall like a a bleak script, especially you know just the the subject. At least the ending, the tone obviously isn't. But you know, I I like how it still kind of has a happy ending in a way, even though it doesn't seem like it has a happy ending. Sure. If that makes I mean, sense. maybe not necessarily a happy ending for Hitler or the fascist, yes, but, but maybe a happy ending for the people. For the audience, yeah. yeah which I think is an, is an interesting twist to have that be, like, good for the audience, but bad for the characters within it. So I think that oh, yeah. I like that. Um, okay, so we, <laughs> we did have a, another question that you pretty much just answered. Uh, I was going to ask about, so obviously the first words we read uh, 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 is about the time that this story takes place, which is described as when the world is caving in. And I was going to ask, did you drive inspiration from a specific moment in time? Uh, but it sounds like you did. So if you want to talk about just a little bit more about that, about why you chose to write this now. I mean, I don't know. I think that's just really the way it's the, the way it's got to be. Like, this is uh, this is a moment where somebody's world is caving in. This is uh, a moment where an entire ideology, an entire movement that is just this terrifying, destructive instrument of nationalism and fascism that it is collapsing on itself and you see this happen throughout history you you saw it happen you know in hitler's germany you saw it happen all over the soviet bloc in which you know things were just disappearing and things were sort of constricting until they broke down entirely and so that's that that that's sort of the the aura of the script that i was going for that that's sort of how i imagined it like there are all these pressures from outside that eventually become too much for this central force to push out all against and eventually it has to shrink back and then collapse it on itself Hmm. yeah that makes total sense and I, i think it's really interesting too because it's like you see if you look at it from a sort of microscopic level you see this one character whose world is sort of caving in but then if you think like you were saying you think about it on a more macro level and it's like this entire caving in of an ideology so yeah. i like i like how it sort of applies on the the micro and the macro level in For this sure. case so yeah. do you do you fear that the audience will empathize with Hitler or the fascist and what would you say to people who are immediately turned off by Hitler as a character? So I drew a little bit of inspiration here from Jojo Rabbit mm. which okay. was <laughs> We were actually you know, going to ask I, later I, if you had seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I I I call it I call it the best film of 2019 but every film of 2019 was the best film of 2019. Yeah, but of anyway. So like I mean, with the exception of cats, but whatever. Anyway. So, <laughs> hey, um, no cat slander on this podcast. <laughs> no, it's Not bad. on this podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yes. So, like, I, I I derived a lot of inspiration from Jojo Rabbit, and Taika Waititi's uh, portrayal of uh, of Adolf Hitler, it, it, it was just this amazing, very, very aware of the situation that it portrayed because it portrayed, you know, this idealistic, here's this, uh, this, this figure in this boy's head and how he plays off of 
this, the, the situations this boy finds himself in. And in a way, Hitler is that for the fascist. It's sort of this, uh, I don't call, I want to call, I don't want to call him a reprieve for the fascist, but it's sort of this way that the fascist has envisioned himself all this time, this powerful leader who can, you know, muscle through anything. And then all of a sudden it all collapses in on itself. And, and there he is left with that defeated shell of Hitler, who's just a sad and desperate and whiny person. Hmm. And so, like, and Hitler makes a lot of attempts to say to the fascist, hey, you are being kind of pathetic, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, like, there's that moment where he asks the fascist, you used to be happy, what happened? Or something along those lines. Used to be happy, right? Just think about that when you were happy, and then the fascist cannot think of that moment when he was happy. That sort of, you know, taking this ideology and it's like it's destroyed this fascist as well. Hmm. Yeah, I think that sort of leads really well into our next question, actually. Um, so, as you mentioned, it's Hitler is sort of like a like a, a reflection, and obviously, you know, he comes through a mirror, literally. And at the end, Hitler gives the advice, when you face your greatest enemies, all you have to do is point and shoot. What's so hard about that? And so, a little history lesson for those who aren't aware, <laughs> Hitler met his demise by shooting himself. And he seems to be implying that the fascist should almost follow suit. So, is this like a, a rare moment of self-reflection for the fascist, fascist, recognizing that he is his own greatest enemy? So, like, talk about that moment and what it means for the script and these characters. I think yeah, that that is definitely what I intended as as a playwright. But also, I also intended for this script to be a sort of way for the director to uh, wh whoever directs this to, um, well, to sort of collaborate with me on that because you know that that is definitely one way to read it. It's this moment of this fascist reflecting on himself realizing he is the enemy but also in a way has that entirely faded out of existence that is a that's a question that's not been answered hmm. by the hmm. the dialogue of the script and so that really falls upon the director that falls upon the actor it's it's all just this really fascinating maze of beats and objectives that i didn't even write in hmm. yeah I'm I'm actually gonna <laughs> you're really just moving into our next questions. It's perfect. Um uh, there there's another question that we were gonna ask later, but I think is appropriate now. So obviously oh at, the, at the very end, the script sort of ends with the stage direction, either before or after blackout an action may or may not be taken. So you you talked about it a little bit, but why do you leave this up to like the the director and the actor's vision and like because I you know it, it, some playwrights are very specific about every single word being the same and every single action being the same you know nothing changed at all but you leave this huge moment up to like the director and the actor and the creative team so so why do you do that and then like sort of what are the different meanings that you see if the action is taken or not? See okay so. I sort of appropriate that style from Susan Laurie Parks, and that's a mm. there's a whole um, that there, there's a whole story about that. And appropriate might not be the right term for that, but it's it's it I, it draws inspiration from the works of Susan Laurie Parks, in which you know she has these moments in the script where 
it shows the character's name as they would be speaking a line, but in the literature of it, there's no line. So it's just a beat that they take to sort of come to terms with the situation that is happening, and that is left entirely on the director and the performer. And so that's just something really fascinating that I sort of played around with in this script, and I think it, it, it could work. But, um, yeah, um, I think that the purpose of drama, and I, I've gone through this as a director, I've gone through this as a writer, the purpose of art mostly isn't to answer questions. It's, it's to ask them. Hmm. And if I, as a playwright, come to this creative team with a question that I've already answered, I'm doing that creative team and that future audience sort of a disservice because I'm not writing a play at that point. I'm, I'm writing propaganda. I'm saying, here is exactly what I think. Portray that to an audience. I'm, I'm not being a collaborative person at all. Hmm. And so I think that, you know, the playwright... The, 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 the playwright presents the question. The creative team surrounding that sort of expands upon that, sort of draws their own conclusion, but it's on the audience to really snap to this final judgment. It, it, it's on the audience to figure out, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? And, you know, the, the creative team through dramaturgical notes and through creative choices in the acting, they can, you know, they, they can sort of guide you to the answer all you want, but it really falls on you as the audience to figure out what was meant by this. Hmm. I I like that a lot. And I, I think it leaves a lot of sort of creativity open, not just for that moment, but then throughout the rest of the script. Because obviously the script culminates in this in this one sort of moment. And depending on which side you take, whether you choose to take the action or not as a creative team, you can then sort of construct the rest of the play you know sort of surrounding that idea mm -hmm. and so and so it really leaves it open for for two very and not really even just two because you know there's even the option of whether you do this in blackout whether you do this with the lights on there there are a lot of different options that can then shape the the beginning of the script leading up to it which i think is really exciting for like a creative team i know if i was on a creative team i would be like this is a really cool opportunity to really say something and add our own vision to it like you said making yeah. the process more collaborative yeah so um, you kind of mentioned, you know, the idea of maybe characters not speaking, um, but the only line we get from the fascist is, I just don't want it to end this way. So why did you choose to keep him silent throughout the play until this moment? Does he really deserve a voice? True. Question. <laughs> that like, is a fair point. Because, <laughs> like, look at the world that we're growing up in right now. We have all of these strong men who were their their only real purpose is to continue shouting and shouting as much as they can and hoping that some of their discourse sticks and let's be honest a lot of their discourse isn't really worth as far as you can throw it but because they say it so loudly and so constantly it just it it takes root and so you have all these people you you have these people in positions of power making a lot of noise and I wanted to see what happens when you strip that from them. And you're left with this sort of powerless husk that's sort of left when the world is caving in for them. That's cool. I also kind of, um, I mean, I don't know if this was your intention, but I also kind of got the vibe that, you know, 
maybe the only person the fascist is willing to listen to is the Hitler side of himself. Hmm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, but yeah, that's really cool. That's interesting, and I, I. That sort of brings up a good point, and I'm going to pose the question to you. I have sort of a theory of myself, um, but I'm going to pose the question to you. So so you say that, you know, this fascist doesn't really deserve a voice, and that's very fair, I think. So so why give give that voice to someone like Hitler? Well, it was there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think that, you know, I'm playwright, yes, but I'm also, you know, trying to trying to make money, I'm trying to make a name for myself, and I can't go through this and be like, okay, here is this other very, uh, who's the, here's this very obscure fascist that you wouldn't know, or yeah. here's this, uh, this, uh, what is it, this, uh, figment of his imagination that doesn't really have a name. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you understand what Hitler symbolizes. You understand that Hitler symbolizes a toxic discourse and you understand that Hitler, you understand the archetype. Yeah. You understand the archetype that this fascist is fitting into as well. I think that, I, I, I think that's what I was going for here. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense with it being a, a specific archetype, you know, because no. I mean, I think that it's definitely more compelling than just, you know, a nameless dictator or, yeah. yeah, I mean, like you said, someone who wouldn't be as recognizable because I think like, and you know, especially to the, similar to the way Teki Watiti did it, you know, I feel like there's almost a way to make the image of Hitler like clumsy and comical sort of the way he did. You know what I yeah. mean? So like it can become kind of a... Uh, I guess it can become kind of a... a, Yeah, a farce, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It can become a farce, for sure. And you you said a couple really interesting things there that I want to touch on. Number one, just the the logistical fact, and I think that's something that that sometimes does get overlooked with people, is like, you know, this has to be marketable to people. You have to get people to read it. To saying, like, you know, the the man who shot the nameless fascist doesn't quite have the same ring as the man who (laughs) shot Hitler. And I think that's something that you really have to take into account. Um, But my original theory was uh that sort of like you like you said before you know it's interesting to see this this fascist stripped of his voice but then we also get the representation of the fascist who was not stripped of their voice in this hitler and you know when uh, on on the surface you know he he is a bit bumbling and things but there's a little bit of a charm to him but then when you look and listen to what he's saying you're like what that's ridiculous that makes no sense at all so you kind of highlight both sides of that issue which i think is like really cool in in the way that you do that well then we can go with that okay (laughs) cool we're happy with whatever interpretation we're 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 still posing the questions here on the green light (laughs) so we just have one more script question for you um for a script that deals with such a difficult and heavy topic it keeps a very light tone throughout so talk about your decision to do that uh well I'm a very lighthearted guy myself, and so, I don't know, I I personally have done a lot of work in the genre of tragic comedy. I have, my, my, um, my, my capstone for my undergraduate degree was written on tragic comic theory in the works of Tom Stoppard. Mm, uh, I love Tom Stoppard. I, Oh, he's he's the best. I got his new play earlier. It's it's amazing. But anyway, so yes. Um so like 
I am very much into the juxtaposition of tragic events or like at, at, at its core tragic events and then lighthearted portrayal of those tragic events. And I think that creates a sort of dissonance in the minds of the audience and the minds of the reader that they sort of have to wonder, why is this a thing that's happening? Mm-hmm. Why, why am I laughing at that? Or why do I feel this way towards this person that I wouldn't otherwise feel towards? It's, it's, it's all about confusion. It's, it's all about figuring out, okay, I'm confused at this. Why am I confused at this? And that's what tragic comedy is really all about. It's, it's, challenging the the audience to figure out why is this playing on me the way that it's playing on me yeah i i I love that and i think it's it's interesting too right because you present someone with like a like a straight drama about like hitler and some fascist and sure that appeals to a certain audience but to some people that's like nah no i don't i don't need that you know it's also too like i feel like if it was purely dramatic it would almost look like too reverent, I guess, you know, like it would be, it would be more than what these people deserve. Yeah. But by making it lighthearted, it almost like, I don't know, I I don't want to say like trivializes their problems, but you know, like it, it, I feel like this is what they deserve, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're on to some questions about you, Steven. How are you feeling? Are you ready for these personal questions? Uh, I was born ready. Okay, cool. Well, you say that now. Hold on. So, usually it, we do like a, not like a deep dive. I, I, I do a little bit of a dive into our guests like Facebook, Instagram stuff to, you know, find out some things about them so I can ask questions about them. So when I found your Facebook, I wasn't expecting too much out of the ordinary and I was pleasantly surprised. Your Facebook is fantastic. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar oh with the show Hot Ones, but they do a segment where they like have people talk about like different Instagram pictures. So we're kind of going to do that, except we're going to talk about like specific Facebook posts you've posted and just get your insight on those because I think that's a good way to get to know you. <laughs> Oh boy! Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I we, we we chose some good ones. I promise. So the first one is, and these are all within the last week, which I so appreciate. It's like you, you just you bang them out, man, and I really appreciate that. So the first one that I have today, I learned that my internal monologue sounds like a medieval peasant. Oh boy! Oh dear! <laughs> so talk about that one. Okay, so like I. I realized this like a while back, not really a while back. It, it, it was, it was just very recent, but, um, just every so often I just have, cause I, I was part of this, of a, of a show called she stoops to conquer when I was during my undergrad, during my junior year of, of, of college. And so we had to learn these two very strong dialects. And one was, you know, upper class British, uh, royal dialect, which I didn't have to learn because I was a peasant and I've always been a peasant. And then there was the, uh, and I, I'm going to be hard pressed to do it now, but it's sort of this, uh, West Country Cornish dialect, uh, mm-hmm. that's very, very rhotic and it, it, it's a lot of fun to do because it, it, it just sort of flows off your tongue in a way. <laughs> and so I, in order to get it down, because it was very difficult for me to get down, but I would talk in it for a, like, in normal situations because I wanted to do really well in this show because it was like the first main stage production 
that I had been casting during my undergrad, and I was like, I really want to do this well. And, you know, the director, Aaron White, he's an amazing director. I, I wanted to impress him. And so it got to the point where I was thinking in that in that dialect, and it just it, it it it's not really medieval. It's it's sort of seventeenth eighteenth century uh, Cornwall. Uh, so it's not really medieval, but it it sounds medieval enough that like if I go to Renaissance Fair and I start talking in it, people are like, "Oh, this guy knows what he's doing." But <laughs> this anyway, guy's one of us. We get it. <laughs> yep. So like every so often I like get into like a debate with someone on the internet because look at me I'm the guy who wrote that piece about the man who shot Hitler <laughs> and I am and like every so often my brain will be like you're talking quite harshly for a man of the crusading distance sir and then <laughs> it's like oh. that's fantastic that's, that's fantastic I'm glad we asked that one first yeah. that's a great explanation. <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, all right, moving on. Our next post, violins are just bourgeoisie fiddles. I mean, aren't they? They are. I they agree. Are. I, I actually, agree. I, am, I am very strong with you on this one. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I'm right. I am I am very right. Like, I'm friends with a lot of music students. I'm, I'm friends with a lot of musicians. And one person, I believe, commented on that. Uh, what was it? Uh, what if I told you violins came first? To which I responded, oh, gosh, what did I say? I said, so are you saying that fiddles are just trashy violins? That's very bourgeois of you. <laughs> yeah, they're just helping your point, really. They don't even know it. They're just helping you. Especially, yeah. Lauren and I both uh, are from North Carolina. So, like, we, I think we definitely stand behind you on this violins are just bourgeoisie fiddles points. So, <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Hozier from the Worst Timeline. Oh, God. Yes. So, like, every long-haired, sort of facial-haired man with, with, you know, dark hair has two people that he's he's compared to over the course of his life, maybe three, and that's Jesus Christ and Hozier and maybe that guy from Queer Eye. Oh, and yeah. So, so like, I, I went through a lot of my life not knowing who Hozier was, and then I dated a girl who was, like, obsessed with Hozier. Oh, no. And at She's one point, I, like, like I... I I watched one of his music videos and I was like, I think he looks like me. And this ex-girlfriend of mine, she's, she's now my ex. And she says, yeah, you're, you're like, you're like him from the worst timeline. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's that why leads. she's your ex. <laughs> yeah. I was going to oh, say, great. She's that's great. That's strong. But I, but like, every so often I just like to remind people that I'm Hozier from the worst timeline. It's, it's, it's a bit. I would sure. say there are worse things that you could be. That's I true. love Hozier. I think Hozier is Hozier's great. Awesome. And also, Hozier is, I mean, I don't know how tall you are, but Hozier is like alien level tall. He's a giant, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. I, I am five foot ten and, and very small. Okay. <laughs> so, so I guess <laughs> kind of plays into the worst timeline idea, but it's fine. <laughs> yep. Okay. Love Shack is the best song ever written. Every so often I just go through these phases where I really, really like the song Love Shack, and I can't explain it. It's like, has something to do with like the, the position of the moon and the sun, I think. It's just, I, <laughs> I it's, it, it's weird, you know, because like, I, I, you know, my, my brother, he goes to bed at like 9 p.m. and then I am up until like 3 a.m. and I'm just, you know, jiving in the other room, just, you know 
headphones in listening to Love Shack on repeat 10, 20, 30 times in a row, and I, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's it's the perfect song. No, I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. We had, um growing up, we had like a, a karaoke machine in the house, and I have two sisters, so uh, one of the CDs had Love Shack on it, and I would always sing the the men's part, and one of my sisters would always <laughs> sing the women's part, and I like didn't understand why my mom was like, "Don't sing that!" Like I, I didn't know what it was about. Um, <laughs> and then you realize, yeah, and then you know what though? Realization. It's a good song. It Maybe is. not appropriate for eight year olds to sing, but good song. I was gonna say your phase of going in and out. That's just my life. That's all I'll have to say about that. <laughs> Jackson's favorite song right now is "This Is Me" from Camp Rock. That's that's true. I'm not gonna deny that. That song is a banger. And if you haven't heard it or haven't heard it in a long time, listen to it again, because it is worth it. Okay. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> that's a fair response as well. Okay. I'm going to approximate that a year from today, I'll be in grad school. First off, super cool. Let's roll this into existence on the green light. Um, any specific places you're looking at? And like, what specifically are you hoping to, to go to grad school for? Okay. So, um, yeah, I made a huge mistake uh, my senior year of college. And, you know, I, I, I am an amalgamation of many terrible mistakes that have somehow turned out to be positive. Like, I, again, I came to this university, you know, just out of default. I only applied because a girl I was dating at the time told me to apply, and I was like, well, okay, and then I applied, and it was like the best four years of my life. But anyway, so... Uh, so like I made a mistake and I applied I, I applied to four MFA programs in dramatic writing and one in creative writing. And it was Carnegie Mellon, uh NYU, Yale School of Drama and Juilliard for dramatic writing and then George Mason University for creative writing. And I got rejected all across the board because I just I, I shot way too high for, you know, me sure, sure, and sure. you know i i you know now i'm doing nothing for a year and that's fine that's entirely fine i can i can spend a year writing it's fine but i yeah but like the entire time and like this was this was like around when i was starting looking into graduate schools i get pulled aside by a professor while i'm working at a library and this this is a professor I know. This isn't just a random professor sitting at the library being like, "Hey, come here, boy." <laughs> no, this is a, this is this is this is a legitimate professor, one of my theater professors, uh, my advisor. And she says to me, "Stephen, are you looking into graduate schools?" She just cuts the chase, and at this point, I didn't even know I was looking into graduate schools. I said, "Yes, I am." <laughs> and then she asked me, and she asks me, "Okay, where?" And I said to her. I, I haven't really started looking that much, but I'm thinking Carnegie Mellon because my grandfather went there. And this professor just sort of sinks, just sort of, just sort of, some of her hope disappears from her eyes. And she oh, no. says, Stephen, the way you are right now, you're not going to get into Mellon. <laughs> so you need to get your expletive together. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, cool. So I like, I, I, I spend a couple of years trying to get my expletive together, and it, it <laughs> and I think I'm, I, I think I'm good, and then I don't. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm applying again this this coming year, uh, again to Carnegie Mellon, again to Yale, again to Juilliard. Uh, then I'm gonna throw some, some other universities in there, some places that might not be quite as selective. But you know, I. 
I was rejected by Juilliard, but I got to like their second stage, which is good. I yeah. think I'd say that's great. Yeah, because like I'm not entirely devoid of talent, so there's that. But yeah, um, I want to go for dramatic writing, uh, creative writing, just regular creative writing. If I if nothing else pans out, I I I think that I'm on the cusp of something great. But it's just going to take a little while and a lot of trial and error to figure out what that something is. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, best of luck with all of that. Yeah. I know that that process can be so stressful. Yeah. Um, do you, how many how many people do those programs accept? I know for acting programs, it's anywhere from like six, six. to like <laughs> ten or something like that. So, how many people do most writing programs accept? Uh, so when I was talking to the people to. People from Carnegie Mellon, they said that their writing cohort is usually four to six people a year, and they usually receive, you know, about 60 to 80 applications a year. So, like, that's, that's, uh, it's a small cohort for a, for a program that's pretty popular. Mm -hmm. Um, For sure. Yep. So... What can you do? Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, best of luck. It's out there on the green light airwaves, so it's gonna happen now. Yeah. We we it's, oh, it's been willed into existence. Yeah, I definitely feel you. I had a, a mentor senior year of high school, and I was talking to him about you know applying for MT programs, and he asked me like the places I was looking, and I was like, Carnegie Mellon, UMich, you know, Elon, oh, like all these different places, and he was like. Well, uh, unless you work really hard, you are not going to get into any of those places. <laughs> and I was like, cool, yep. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's tough with, with a lot of stuff, I feel like, because it's like, you know, some people, especially with, like, musical theater stuff and, like, you know, even writing stuff, I imagine, some people, if you've just, like, been doing it for a longer time, especially when you're coming out of high school, you know, like, you have su- such more of an advantage, like, if you've been pushed like that at a younger age. For which, sure. like, not everyone has had the access to or ability to so you know um okay yeah. last last facebook post question i'm sure you're you're thanking god on that one pandas oh, are the ultimate nihilists they just they do nothing they eat and they refuse to do the do and they like have no interest in like continuing their collective existence it's like they've come to terms with the fact that they have no point and, like, what does that say about us? You know, did they know something that we don't? Should we just be, you know, eating and sleeping and doing nothing else? I mean, yeah, you know, and I, saw, <laughs> I, I posted that. I posted that after I saw a video on Kung Fu Panda. And I was ah. like, what's the point? That's a good point. That is a good point. I mean, they they are on to something with the with the eating and sleeping and and doing nothing else. I think that sounds like a decent life to me. Um, but uh yeah, okay. So, we're past that. Move mo- moved on, moved on. Yeah. Um, now we have one actually kind of serious one, yeah. but uh, Laura, Lauren's going to hit you with that one. All right. So you are also very politically active on your social media account. So talk about your reasoning behind this and if you think everyone should be politically active online as well. I don't know. I, I was raised in a very sort of moderate liberal household. So like, we believe that everyone should be people. We've, we've, we've hit that point in our, in our collective ideology. <laughs> Good. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm considerably more left leaning than, 
been the majority of my family. I have like one brother who's also more or less a leftist. But um, I think that especially in this day and age, I think that the internet is one of the greatest tools we have for disseminating discourse. And I think there's, there's the positive and the negative to that. And the positive is that, you know, it's really easy to share information. It's very easy to, to help people understand why these issues are important issues. The problem with that is it's also very easy to spread misinformation. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to share posts that are just opinions, like very, very simple opinions shared as facts. And that sort of lodges in you for a while. I, I, I told you, you know, how various, you know, fascist leaders, what they do is they scream a lot and they, you know, they put you through the propaganda machine and eventually you come out and you're like, are these people really people? And so like that, that is an immense negative to the internet. And that is a huge negative to social media. I try to frame what I say on social media and I try to frame what I represent as a person as this is just basic human decency. This is just how people should be treating one another. This is, this is, this is kindness. And the fact that the concept of kindness is so foreign to what I consider to be the official American ethos is heartbreaking right now. Like my, my parents have, not necessarily fought tooth and nail, but have staunchly supported policies and ideas that that speak to basic human decency, and they've been doing this their whole lives. And the fact that, you know, some blowhard from New York can rocket himself to office and be like, I'm going to upend literally all of this, make the, make the planet unsustainable, make capitalism the, the worst we've ever seen it, it's 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 heartbreaking to to see you know how people who've been alive for considerably longer than i have sort of react to this this these 5 years these 4 years of regressivism mm-hmm. and so i i try my best to try to you know control that damage to sort of be like hey this is not okay and like if i do have one wish for listeners to date that you should Please get out and vote, and because mm-hmm. that—that's how we're going to get leaders in office who are going to reflect the values that we have. Like personally, my my mother's birthday is is inauguration day, and I would love for her birthday presents to be no more Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, <laughs> that would be a great we'll birthday see. present. Yeah. <laughs> well. we'll see. We'll see how that goes. My Tinder bio is literally, hey, please vote out Trump. It's for my mother. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great bio. You really weed out people immediately from that, too, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like, like if someone's with you, they know from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, at this point, like, if you... Doing and saying nothing is harmful. You know what I mean? It's, It's not just a neutral lack of action. It is... A harmful lack of action. Yeah, and it, and 
to a certain extent, it's almost a, a privilege to not be able to speak out, you know? For sure. Because for, for, for some people, not speaking out and not doing work is, is harmful, will literally harm them. But for some people, they yeah. have the, the ability and, you know, someone who looks a lot like me, you know, <laughs> a, a white straight male, you know, could, could sit back and do nothing and I would not be affected whatsoever, really, which is why I think it's even more important to, to get out there and to, to, to be active on, on places like social media. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's where we're going to end it because I think that's a good place to yeah. end it for this episode. So, right. The Man Who Shot Hitler by Stephen Christopher McKnight. Uh, Stephen, do you have any um, anything you'd like to plug? Anything coming up for you? Okay. So, um, first of all, if you haven't listened to it already, Nolan Nightingale's play, uh, what was it, A Stupid Broken Leg that yes, Green Light did several weeks ago. Uh, do listen to that as well. Nolan Nightingale is a good friend of mine, uh, an old roommate. Uh, he's currently doing his best to, to scrape by right now. He's, mm-hmm. he's making good art. Um, but yeah, um, also I was promised that I would get to to dispense dirt on Nolan Nightingale. Yes, that's so. true. I forgot. I forgot about that. Go for it. 30 <laughs> seconds now. All right. Great. So, first of all, Nolan Nightingale, not his real name. His real name is Gunter. He is an eldritch being from, I believe, Iceland, and he is great and terrifying, and we should all respect him. <laughs> uh, when he was 18, I believe, he bought a watch for $80, and then he got all angsty about time and threw it into the ocean. Uh, he once told an EMT that his major was not theater, but in fact marketing, because he thought that would be more masculine. And one time when I was away on vacation for a week, I came back and there was a, a sink full of dirty dishes, and at the bottom of the, of, the, of the pile of dirty dishes, there was an entire raw egg that was just pulverized. And, you know, both of my roommates, Nolan and our other guy, uh, both of them blamed it on the other. And for the sake of, you know, giving you more dirt on Nolan Nightingale, I am going to say that uh, Nolan did it. <laughs> So anyway, that is that is my dirt on Nolan Barrett Nightingale. That is that is the man that you wow. have invited on your podcast. I hope you feel good about that. Wow, that was more than I could have afforded. I will tell you right now, when you said that his real name is not Nolan Nightingale, Lauren and I shared a look that was like pure shock. And so I really don't know how much of what you said is truth and what is not. However, I'm just going to operate under the assumption that it's all true. So Nolan, you've been called out officially. <laughs> but, alrighty. The man who shot right. Hitler, Stephen Christopher McKnight. Thank you for coming on, Stephen. We had a blast. Yeah, if you want to reach Absolutely. out to Stephen, uh, his email will be in the description. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'll also put a link to to uh, check your voter registration in the yeah, description as well. I think that's great. Oh, please do, yeah. Yeah, that would be a great. All right. Sounds good. Thank you again, Stephen. Bye. Absolutely. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Green Light. The Green Light. Thank you to our guests who came on. Thank you to our wonderful friends who came on and helped us record the wonderful script. Yeah. Now, if you have not done it yet, it would be really helpful if you would go on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. If you roast me, or if you roast Lauren, or if you leave a detour, we'll probably read it on air. That's right. Mm -hmm. Another way you can help us is by subscribing to our Patreon. We have lots of exclusive content on there, and you can give as little as a dollar a month, and you'll still get a lot of it. Yeah. A lot of our bonus detours, a lot of our ramble episodes, and $5 for the Greenland episodes, which are my favorite. 
So that link is in the description. Yes, also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, TGL underscore pod. Facebook is... At Green Light Pod. Yes, and if you want to follow us personally, I'm at at J underscore Woodward underscore C on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Hunkleberry, H-U-N-K-E-L-E-B-E-R-R-Y on Instagram and Twitter. And I think that's it. That's it. Thanks. Thank y'all so much for listening. We love you. Love you.